Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. This week I'm going to have the second part of the two-part series of my interview with Skip Strong and Twain Braden about the book In Peril, A Daring Decision, A Captain's Resolve, and The Salvage That Made History. Before I get to that, I want to thank my latest review, and that's from Nancy R.C., who wrote in the iTunes directory, I've been listening to Franz now for more than a year and generally enjoy the podcast as long as he sticks to sailing topics. I've particularly enjoyed the last few episodes with interviews of Pam Wall and Dan Culpepper. Kudos to you, Franz, for finding these great people to interview and keeping them talking about their personal stories. Keep up the good work. Now, Nancy, I appreciate you letting me know that you want me to stick to the sailing topics. By that, I... I understand that you don't really want me to editorialize about my personal opinions, which I can understand, but now I'm sort of torn. So I'm a little torn right now because I got another listener back on April 4th who wrote, and this is Droiden Space, he wrote, informative and inspiring with an easygoing style. Franz seems to be one of those people who loves to share stories and is very generous with his sailing knowledge. I've listened to about eight episodes and I'm hooked. His intro to the podcast is the best I never skip over it. Now, I don't know if he likes my editorial comments, my personal stories, or not, but I'll be quite honest. The introductions take me a long time to think of and edit and put together, and quite honestly, it's just easier for me to go straight to the interviews. And I'd actually sort of like to hear from listeners, would you like me to skip over where I'm talking about my personal life and go straight to the content on Sailing in the Mediterranean? I'm easy either way. It doesn't matter to me. And I know I offend some people with my, <laughs> my opinions, but that's okay. I don't expect to please everybody. But if you have any comments, drop me a note, franz at medsailor.com. Let me know what your thoughts are. Should I just cut out my personal anecdotes of my personal life not related to sailing, or should I keep it up? Let me know. I do appreciate anybody that writes a review in iTunes for me. It makes a difference. It keeps me going. The more reviews I get, the bigger my audience grows. And my audience has not really grown that much over the last few months. I've sort of surprised for the efforts I've been putting into the podcast and the consistency of the material on a weekly basis. I would have expected my audience to grow, but it seems to be fairly stable. And I'm trying to grow the audience. So if you have comments, thoughts, suggestions, drop me an email, let me know. I appreciate you listening, and let's get on to the second part of the interview with Skip Strong and Twain Braden. This is a great story. I enjoyed talking to them, and and I've got a lot of positive Twitter comments, a lot of retweets. So let's move on to the main body of today's podcast. All right. So now you know you have something valuable behind you, but you still have, you're not out of trouble yet. So... 
Are you able to make your way against the wind and current, or are you losing way? Are you getting closer? Are you getting in, putting your vessel in jeopardy? So during so during the whole morning, while we're sort of we're generally steaming, you know, making good a course of about due south. I'm steering. The heading of the ship is about southeast. Um, the speed on the engine is we're basically if we were in flat water, we should be making about six knots. Um, but what we're doing is we're making good just about one eight zero, so due south. So we've cut roughly forty five degrees of leeway, and we're making just over a knot of speed over the ground. Um, and that roughly follows the the you know ten fathom curve or the sixty foot curve going down the east coast of Florida, which is what I do not want to go inside. My ship is drawing thirty five feet of water. We're in fifteen to twenty foot seas at the bottom of those troughs, and I'm essentially beam two in a lot of this stuff. Um, yeah, my Fathometer is not real happy about that. I mean, I'm getting within eight to ten feet of the bottom um, as we're doing this. That's pretty uncomfortable in you know open ocean to be that close to the bottom in those types of conditions. But uh, you know, it's relatively flat, sandy bottom. I think we're in pretty good shape. Um, but as this other tug is working its way up to us, it's like, okay, you got to you know, let's let's get up here, let's get this taken care of because I can't do this forever. Um, you know, finally at um, noontime, the the Osier or the South Bend gets up to us. Um, we uh, try and we just can't do anything. So finally, around fourteen hundred, we say, "Listen, something's got to happen. You got to get in there to do it." So they essentially tried to do the same thing we did. They got upwind of the tugboat, sent over a heaving line um, with that was tied onto their um, soft hawser that they had for towing. Um, and they had a wire bridle on the end of it that was going to ride over the, the bow of the, the Ogeron, the tug we were towing. Um, and they were going to do all, do all that, take it all in tow, just you know, get everything on there, take a strain on it. They'd cut our lines, and then they tow the uh, Ogeron and the, the barge off, and we would be over and done with. Um, but as they were doing this and getting it over there, they got their heaving line over. They started pulling everything over. But they just had a soft hawser on board. And what they did is they put the entire 1,800 feet of this hawser in the water before they had a solid connection. And as they were pulling this wire bridle through the bullnose of the Ogeron, the heaving line that they were using to pull it in through parted. So they didn't get a connection. Um, and there was they had to get all 1,800 feet of this hawser back on board before they could try again. Um, the capstan wasn't really working on the, the south bend, so they had to essentially chase their hawser downwind and pull it on board as they were running downwind and the strain was taken off of this thing um, and so they could get it back on board. So these guys were out of the picture um, and then we're sort of just left you know, wondering what are we going to do next. Um, <clears throat> And that's when, um, yeah, we just we're just biding our time till the South Bend gets up there. But it's uh, if you look at a chart over there, the coast of Florida actually starts working back out to the east. We're getting closer and closer to the uh, 60 foot curve. Um, there are fish havens um, marked on the charts, which are nothing but wrecks, um, which I don't want to be going over. Um, so we're running out of time. 
And this is where, you know, the port captain for um, the barge, who was, a, you know, port captain for NASA, um, an, ex, um, uh, an ex-Navy guy, a graduate of the Naval Academy, sailed on destroyers, destroyer escorts, his captain, just a really great guy, really smart, um, and removed from the scene enough that he was a really big help to me. He said, what about anchoring your ship? And it was one of those things that it's like, if I'd been smart enough, I would have thought of it on my own. Um, but as soon as he said it, it made absolutely perfect sense. And we're only in about 70 feet of water. It's looking like good holding ground. I've got two good anchors. You know, I could easily anchor in this stuff. I've certainly been anchored in worse conditions than this. Um, I would have no problem sitting there and anchoring. The, the big question is, what's going to happen when we stop moving and the tug and barge are still moving somewhat? You know, are my lines going to be able to, you know, withstand that strain? That was the only real question we had, but we were running out of distance our space to do it. So that was the ultimate decision we had to do was uh, we were going to go to anchor. Um, the South Bend, you know, heard all this conversation going on. They said, great, you're going to go to anchor. We're going to go into port. Um, we're going to just keep going downwind. Our line's on board. We're going to go down into wind into Fort Pierce and um, go to, uh, uh, go to, you know, stay, stay safe down there. And I said, well, how about if you guys come back up here and stand by? Because if we part those two lines when my anchor's down, um, there's no way um, we're going to be able to do anything. And then you could come up here and pick up the pieces. So they uh, they they agreed somewhat reluctantly, but they were going to start coming back up there to help out and stand by in case something went wrong. Um, as we're getting ready to go anchor, and which is a an evolution in itself, because I've got to get my guys, you know, the bosun, the chief mate, and a couple of ABs up to the forecastle head, which is fortunately a raised forecastle head on this ship. Um, but I've got to get them up the main deck, up on the forecastle head, get the anchors cleared so they can let the anchors go. And just as we're getting ready to let the anchor go on our ship, we hear a mayday call over channel 16. It's the South Bend. Um, they've lost a hatch in their after deck. They got six feet of water in the engine room. They immediately take off running downwind as fast as they possibly can. And they've got about five miles to go to get into the uh, breakwater at Fort Pierce, or maybe even a little less than that. But they uh, run downwind, go through the breakwater at Fort Pierce with their stern underwater. And as soon as they get in through the breakwaters and, you know, and into the calm weather and past, past the actual breakwater, they go hard to starboard and run the tug aground so they don't sink. So, so our, so our safety net has sort of been uh, lost for this, but you know, meanwhile, we got no other choice at this point in time. We're just going to drop the anchor. Um, and ultimately we, uh, we anchor safely. Everything sort of slides in right behind us and we all sort of sit there um, nice and, you know, as calm as, as possible, um, you know, in these conditions sitting at anchor. Um, and and then we uh, all decide we ought to put out a few more lines at this point in time. So we spend a whole lot of time getting some more of our mooring lines out and up and figuring out ways to get them back to the bow of the, uh, the Ocheron. Um, and we wind up sitting at anchor for about another day and a half until the storm systems all pass and we're able to go off and pass this thing off um, to someone else who can finish up the job. So I'm not going to ask you to describe it here, but the, the how you got the other lines back to to the tug 
is a story by itself. So, and that's in the book. So I'm going to have to make people read it to find out how you did that. Now, let me ask you a question on anchoring. Did you just have one anchor down, or did you deploy both of your anchors? Nope. Only put one. I only put one anchor down, and uh, the, the, we were ready to put both down if we needed to. But the feeling was, um, with one anchor, you know, I could easily put one anchor down and say we had twelve shots of chain. Each shot is ninety feet, so had you know nine hundred, almost a thousand feet of chain. The holding power is certainly in the chain as opposed to the, the anchor, really. Um, we were going to have plenty of chain on the bottom, and I felt we were one anchor would be just fine for anchoring in these conditions. And if we did start to drag, again, the beauty of a steam turbine ship is having put two, three, four RPMs on the ship just to ease off the ch strain on the anchor chain. Not enough to get us going forward, but just enough to ease off the strain. Um, so it's a, I had no concerns whatsoever with us being able to anchor and stay there. What the concern was, was whether when we stopped moving, those two mooring lines that we had out, which were old mooring lines and getting ready to be you know, sent ashore to be disposed of, because I didn't think they were safe to tie up the ship anymore, but those were all we had. Um, and then um, how we, uh, you know, if they parted, we were, we were done. We were out of luck. We had no, nothing else to do then. So you were able to get two more mooring lines, and you did lose one mooring line uh, while you were while you were right. anchored, right? Right. So soon after we anchored, just after we anchored, you know, we were you know heading into the seas. We could actually get everyone out there, sort of on the back deck, um, and you know, looking at this, and you know, finally taking a real good look at this situation. What we were going to do, we wanted to get some more mooring lines up, and our line locker is down. You know, the only access hatch is through the through the main deck on the stern. We were taking a whole lot of water over that deck during the daytime as we were, you know, just towing these guys. Um, and the line locker is right next to my electric steering gear motors, and I was not going to open that up to um, try and get more lines out and put salt water on my electric steering gear motors. I mean, that just wasn't going to happen. So once we got to anchor, we were able to do that. But the uh, the tugboat had been, you know, pitching up and down all day long, and they had no chafing gear um, on the lines as they went over their, you know, over their bow and through their bullnose. So as soon as we got to anchor, within probably within a half an hour, one of those two lines parted. And so then we were left with just one line between us. You know, the captain was able on the tug was able to fire up his engine, take a little bit of strain off of the, you know, the line. Uh, but we were, we were frantically running around there for a good couple of hours until we got another three lines up and secured onto the bow of the tugboat. And then, you know, periodically, you know, every six to eight hours, we would probably chafe through the bottom line that went over the bow of the tugboat. And we would just, you know, pull that one back in. We sort of had an endless loop between us and we'd send out another one, um, you know, and put another line out there. So we always kept four lines out there, get the old one back on board. The bosun and his, you know, the crew of ABs would go back and splice in an eye of, you know, the one that had just chafed through and be ready to go back out with it again when we needed to. When that line parted, what, first of all, is it nylon, Dacron? Is it a stretchy line? What is yeah, it? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a stretchy line. Um, uh, polydacron, eight braid polydacron line. Um, yeah, they definitely stretch. Um, the uh, the thing, you know, there was there was probably some snapback, um, but I honestly 
don't know how much. It certainly didn't come on board a bus, and it was going the waves. You know, the you know there were probably we had almost 600 feet of line out between us. This thing was probably going through two or three crests of waves, and that friction just would slow that the line down once it parted um, for doing stuff. So there was uh, there was no snapback, but that was definitely a, a concern of us because any line under tension is <laughs> that can easily hurt people pretty quickly. So you basically stayed at anchor, finish up the salvage force, and then I want to go to Twain and talk to him about the actual court case, if that's okay with you, Skip. Oh yeah, that's that's fine. So the uh, so we essentially sat there. The, you know, this storm, you know, the storm center was still sitting off of Key West. And this was now evening of the fifteenth. Um, on the sixteenth, the storm system, um, you know, starts to starts to move again. Comes across Florida. Um, exits out about eight miles to the northwest of us. Um, and so we, you know, uh, this is now the third time we've gone past this storm, or the second time we've gone past the storm. We'll go past it a third time before we're done with it. Um, but the uh, the storm exited out, and tip like any typical storm in the northern hemisphere, you know, storm system exits, wind clocks around, comes around out of the northwest, everything starts to lay down um, and get, get nice. The... Um, the on the 16th, you know, as things are starting to improve, the storm is exiting out there. You know, they finally gotten a you know a real tugboat, the Dorothy Moran, coming down from Jacksonville. You know, big big ocean going tug is going down there to take this stuff over. These guys arrive late on the night of the 16th. Um, they've had a pretty horrendous trip coming down. Um, and, you know, they sort of do a survey of everything. You know, things are now starting to lay down. Everyone's done a survey, but everyone's been beaten up pretty hard, both on that boat, you know, by ship. Uh, you know, I certainly haven't slept in about 48 hours at this point in time. Um, the guys on the tugboat are um, feeling pretty well beat up, although things are starting to lay down a little bit. Um, but I sort of look at this situation and say, you know what, so far we've done this. No one's gotten hurt. There's been no damage. Let's wait till daylight when things are even in better conditions, um, and then we'll go ahead and get rid of this thing. You know, transfer this stuff over. And as sort of the as the captain of the the salvaging vessel, you know, essentially what I say goes. I mean, I've got control of everything back there, but there was no reason to put you know try and do stuff that evening. So everyone, you know, the the two tugboats that actually came down to help you know solve this thing um, headed off, went into Fort Pierce. Um, you know, with the game plan of, you know, everyone's going to show back up, you know, 0800 in the morning, um, and we'll turn these things loose and uh, um, get going. So everyone gets out there at about um, uh, 8 o'clock, 8.30 or so, and we start to get things going. And, um, you know, we're obviously in contact with the Coast Guard, my office, everything else in my office then says, you know, at about 9 o'clock, 9.30 in the morning, my office says you may not let that barge go. We don't know what kind of contracts these guys, you know, these other two tugboats are under. We don't know if they're under towing contracts or salvage contracts for helping out with this thing. Um, and said, we don't want you to let it go until um, we know what's going on. I said, well, so far we've done everything we possibly could to keep these guys safe. Um, but we can't finish the job. We've got to turn it over to these things. You know, we've done this without getting hurt. Um, no damage really to the ship, anything else. We need to turn it over. Um, and we got into a pretty heated discussion there between myself and Ralph Hill 
at the office, but he said, I said, I'll, you've got 30 minutes to sort this out. I said, then I'm turning them loose and yeah, went up back up above to the bridge, um, went on the radio, talked to the guys out there and said, listen, I hate to do this, but everyone go grab a cup of coffee. I've given the attorneys 30 minutes to sort this stuff out. Um, and you know, at, at 10 o'clock, we're going to turn everything loose. Um, and everyone was very polite, uh, you know, uh, respected the position I was in. Um, and we just, everyone just stood down. I left the bridge cause I was fuming at that point in time, uh, went down to my office and, uh, you know, as I was watching the clock in my office, you know, as the second hands clicking up towards 10 o'clock, I head out of my office to head up the one flight of stairs. And as I'm going up there, my cell phone starts ringing, the satellite starts ringing, phone starts ringing. And as I go you know, back, you know, back down there, I had a little smile on my face and said, at least they realized I was serious when I said 10 o'clock. Um, <laughs> and so they, they'd gotten everything sorted out, um, and uh, and I actually just had uh, was at a uh, Christmas party a uh, a couple of nights ago or last week with the uh, the guy who was on the shore side end of it working for Ralph Hill figuring out what those contracts were and so we had a nice little conversation last week about that but they got the contracts sorted out uh, we went up there took us about forty five minutes or so to turn the uh, the barge loose and then the Ogeron loose. And uh, they all went on their way, and once we got cleared by the Coast Guard, we heaved our anchor and headed on our way up to Jacksonville. I'm going to bring Twain back. And, Twain, uh, Skip talked about a towing contract versus a salvage contract. He didn't want to turn over the Cherry Valley until the contracts with the, the relieving tug, the tug, the big tug that came out to take over, were, were taken care of. So just tell me the difference between a salvage contract or a salvage tug and a towing tug, I guess. Sure. Yeah. The when when uh, when Skip was was impatiently waiting for the callback, um, the the attorney Ralph Hill uh, and his his colleagues were no doubt scrambling um, to really evaluate what this meant for for them as a company. Uh, you know, the risk had had largely passed, and now it was trying to determine what's the what's the controlling law here. And it's it's really the the um, the fundamental question when you when you enter into the salvage arena is you have to make a decision, and you know in evaluating this the, the court has to make a decision between whether uh, salvage contract law applies or what's called pure salvage law applies, and so if and it's 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 crucial the difference because if it's if it's a if it's contract then the amount that one is paid for that salvage effort under a contract is merely basically the price of a tow. So it's, you know, cost of materials, uh, you know, plus 15% or whatever the contract is. So that could be, you know, sure a lot of money for if a tanker's towing a tugboat and a, and a barge, but really, you know, a thousand dollars, you know, in thousand dollar increments. Um, and, you know, this is what tugboats do all the time. They tow under contract and, you know, it's lucrative as, as far as it goes, but it's, it's really, you know, time and materials plus, uh, you know, plus a small profit. However, if you, if you enter into the arena of pure salvage, um, it's a whole different world. There's no contract that applies. And in order to do that, you have to meet a three-part test under the law. Um, and that's what, that's what Ralph Hill and others were trying to figure out in those moments uh, before they called Skip back and, and were comfortable with him releasing the barge. 
um, to these uh, to the to this other tugboat. Um, so what what a court will do? That's the first threshold. Is this contract salvaged? Did some sort of contract apply here, and therefore you know we're going to award the basically towing rates, um, or is there a pure salvage scenario? Pure salvage, the three-part test is there has to be the existence of what's called a marine peril. There has to be, so a marine peril could be, you know, uh, you know, she's in danger of going aground, she's in danger of foundering because of a storm, uh, there's a fire at sea, there, you know, any number of marine perils can, can be in existence, but there has to be, the first prong of that test is there has to be the existence of some marine peril. The second factor of pure salvage is uh, there has to be no pre-existing duty on the part of the person who's rendering that salvage service. So, for example, Coast Guard uh, or other government entities that are under you know, some sort of pre-existing obligation, some pre-existing duty, um, cannot assert salvage. Um, and the same is true if you're, you know, if you're towing a barge and suddenly your, you know, your barge go, goes adrift and then you, you, know, you, you turn around and recover it you can't assert salvage claims because it was your pre-existing duty by virtue of the contract that you had with that barge um, to, you know, to tow it where you needed to tow it. So there has to be no pre-existing duty for, uh, for salvage to apply. That's the second prong. The third prong is you have to have success in whole or in part. So you have to somehow contribute to, um, to saving the property. If you, you, know, you spend 48 hours um, towing this expensive barge and its expensive, valuable cargo, and you know she sinks to the bottom of the sea, uh, you're you're not successful. Um, and if you're you know you're you're wholly successful in you know in in securing it, saving it from the, the marine peril, um, then you're or or even partially successful, then you have a valid salvage claim. So that's the first threshold: evaluating whether it's whether it's a towing contract, uh, contract salvage, or pure salvage. Um, so does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so that's that's the first threshold. In in. So we, so, we, so let's, let me stop. So so the boat that came out to take over the tow, they would have been basically being paid for their for the tow of that in, and they would not have a right to the salvage because they didn't fit the three prongs, right? Right, and and what Ralph Hillwood was concerned about was basically sharing salvage, pure salvage rights with this Johnny Come Lately uh, tug company that had been hired, um, you know, after the, the the heroic salvage had been done, um, to come along and say to then file a pure salvage claim. So he wanted assurances that they were under a contract, time and materials, cost plus contract basis, and would not be participating in a pure salvage claim. So once, you know, I, I, I don't know whether Ralph Hill got those assurances, but let's, let's assume he did. Um, and now let's fast forward to the court case. So this was, you know, this was in trial uh, in, the, in the federal district court in New Orleans, and then it was appealed, which is a whole story unto itself. And ultimately, Judge Duval um, decided for the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in, um, uh, it, that sits in New Orleans at a bench trial. Um, they ultimately, he ultimately evaluated um, the marine, you know, the uh, the salvage award, and doing so, every salvage case, if you've met that three part test, and you say, and the court determines that there is a, a pure salvage scenario, then you have to go about determining, well, okay, how much do we offer for this uh, for the salvage scenario? And there's under this case from the 1860s. 
um, called the Black Wall, was a Supreme Court case uh, that, that originated in California. Um, there are six factors that are still used today, and uh, in the Fifth Circuit in uh, in Margate Shipping versus J. A. Ogeron, which was the case that um, that Skip's uh, story became, um, they used they analyzed that the, the six part. Um, Blackwall factors in determining uh, the, the the salvage award, um, and you know I won't I won't read them to you, but but suffice to say that that Skip's case met every single one of them to their highest possible degree, um, and which is why it was such a such a perfect fit for the Blackwall factors. Now the Blackwall factors you describe in the book. And is this the the case where there was a fire on a ship and the fire department responded by getting on another ship and putting it out? Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, that's correct. It's it's named after uh, in the old days they used to um, they used to say you know the name of the case was the name of the ship that was it was um, you know was was involved. Um, so the Blackwall was a British frigate. Uh, excuse me, a. a um, a British bark. It was some sort of merchant vessel. And so she was at anchor in, in San Francisco Bay. Um, and she had a full load of cargo waiting, you know, for her turn at, alongside the docks. Um, and at four in the morning, she breaks out in flames and somebody ashore notices, uh, the crew actually abandoned. They took to the boats and they, and they left the vessel, which is crucial to, uh, to the later case in, in the salvage. And, the fire department, you know, kind of got their horses and their horse-drawn uh, fire engine, and they went down to the docks and realized, you know, the, the ship's at, at anchor. They can't they can't reach her unless they get a ride out there. So they rousted um, the uh, a deckhand of the of the steam tug Goliath um, that was alongside, and and he kind of ran up the road and got the captain out of bed, and together. Uh, they got steam up, and the the fire department commandeered the tug and you know ordered them to get underway. They put the fire engine aboard the tug, and then they proceeded out there. Uh, the tug crew tied alongside, and then participated in the salvage. Excuse me, in in fighting the fire. Uh, they were in danger of having the mass, or they were worried about the possibility of the mass that had been burning for now several hours, that they would fall over on on themselves and the tug. Uh, they eventually uh, got the the fire under control. The the fire department put out the fire, um, and they saved a good portion of the ship, and they saved all of the cargo. And so it was the the crew of the the captain and crew of the tug Goliath that filed and ultimately won a salvage award. And it was in that case where Justice Clifford um, of the U.S. Supreme Court came up with those six Blackwall factors in. In deciding it, so so it's important to note that the that the fire department themselves they they had no uh, no claim for salvage because they were under pre existing duty, but but the, the 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 members of the crew and the captain of the tug Goliath and her owners uh, did have a valid salvage claim. So coming back to the the, uh, the Cherry Valley, a lot of the case, a lot of the arguments in the case, everybody widely acknowledged that uh, that that Skip did everything right there, there was really not even argument within the during the court case what the argument really came down to was the value of the cargo is that is that an accurate description of, of what was going on yeah that's right I, I think that nobody on the side of the government wanted to pick a fight with um, you know with skip strong or or any of these other issues I mean it was it was clearly a good case for salvage um, 
you know, the, the lawyers that I interviewed for this book all said, you know, Skip was just a terrific witness and he, you know, he tells a great story and there, and there's, uh, so nobody really wanted to, to mess with that on the side of the government. What, what their strongest fight, the only fight that they could really have was trying to sort of disassemble the argument that the, the space shuttle's fuel tank was worth in the plaintiff's uh, description, $90 million. Um, and, and the government had, you know, the government attorneys were, were attempting to de devalue that because one of the, one of the factors, one of the Blackwall factors, uh, and, and arguably the most important one, uh, is, is factor number three, which is the value of the property, excuse me, um, the number five, the value of the property saved. That's always the one that is sort of fair game that everybody wants to try to, you know, the plaintiffs try to, um, you know, make the value, uh, extraordinarily high, and then the, the defendants say, oh, you know, that thing was a piece of junk. She wasn't worth much. Um, and the court really has to, to try to try to read through that and, and try to evaluate what was the fair market value post-salvage of whatever it was that was saved. Um, and that's really where the government tried to, um, tried to kind of uh, bring that figure down. Now, you describe in the book the negotiations that went on uh, before it went to court, can you describe those and what the government offered and and how it ended up finally going to court and becoming such a landmark case? So it's it's important for me to sort of stop here and say I wasn't involved in the case and I, and I, it, I, you know I, I had an academic interest and a kind of a professional writerly interest in the story, but but Skip's better uh, better poised to kind of tell the story of you know what was actually happening during those settlement discussions. Okay, Skip, you want to jump in there? Sure. Um, so, you know, leading up to this thing, it was, um, you know, once we finished, you know, finished this up, you know, got in there and, you know, everyone was, you know, NASA was very happy that they had their fuel cell was intact and in good condition. Uh, their barge wasn't damaged. Uh, you know, none of the guys on the tugboat had gotten hurt. Um, they were very happy and they, you know, relatively quickly after discovery was sort of done of, you know, statements being taken and all of this stuff within about six months, um, you know, NASA essentially came up and said, um, you know, we'd like to offer you guys, you know, $5 million for, you know, saving the, you know, the fuel cell and the barge, um, which was roughly, um, you know, 10% of the value of the fuel cell. I mean, uh, you know, when we went to trial, there was argued that the, the value of the fuel cell was $90 million, which was um, certainly an argument you could make. But the, uh, I, I would say the most, um, the closest cost that we had to what it was, was if they had, and the judge asked, you know, the, uh, you know, the NASA administrator, well, if you had lost this fuel cell, what would you have done? They said, we would have used the next one in line. And he said, what's the price tag on that one? And they came out at about $52 million. So they were essentially offering us 10% of the value of the fuel cell, which is a pretty common um, value for, um, you know, for pure salvage stuff, you know, roughly 10% of the value. Um, you know, it could be more, could be less. It depends on, it depends on the circumstances, but um, we certainly didn't do this rescue for money. Um, we did it to help the five guys in the tug and the fact that they're willing to, you know, give us this amount of money for it. Um, everyone thought that was a very fair settlement. Um, 
because of the amount of money, um, NASA had to get approval from the Justice Department. The 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 you know the guys in the you know sort of the uh, who do the bulk of the work there in the Justice Department um, thought it was a fine settlement, but you know it's a big big sum. They had to get approval, and they went up to one of the uh, the assistant attorney general. Um, to get you know to uh, get him to sign off on this, um, and his name was Frank Hunger, um, and I'm sure Frank Hunger is a is a fine lawyer. He's from Kentucky. The fact that he was Al Gore's brother-in-law probably had nothing to do with how he got his job um, there during you know during the Clinton administration. Um, but anyway, he looks at this case and he just says that's far too much money. Does not approve the offer and goes down to. Um, essentially offering a, a million dollars for doing the rescue. And then, you know, that's not working. And then he goes off and does individual offers to all the crew members um, trying to get this thing to settle. Um, and it doesn't happen. And so we immediately go from you know, a very amicable working relationship with NASA and the Justice Department attorneys to um, going, you know, basically to trial. Uh, and so we just keep working our way towards trial. And it's one of those things that the, um, um, we went to trial in early beginning of July of 1995. And, you know, they started out at a million dollars and then they came with the justice department came up from that. Uh, we basically got up to just about the trial date and we had about three, a little over $3 million that they were offering us now, um, at this point in time, um, which is still, that's a, that's a lot of money for, um, yeah, what we did. It was a it was a reasonable offer. Uh, we didn't quite think it was fair, um, but we we had to make a decision when we're essentially on the courthouse steps. It's like, what do we do? We have a very fair offer. We're looking to go to trial. Um, as soon as you step in that courtroom, um, you really have no idea what's going to happen. Um, and they sort of took a poll of all of us there. You know, the owners of Keystone were there. The attorneys were there. I was there. The chief mate was there. Um, the owners of Keystone were not overly thrilled with the idea of suing the government, who was also one of their bigger clients for managing and operating ready reserve ships. So they didn't like the idea of really suing one of their, you know, customers. Um, but they understood the value of this case. Um, the attorneys absolutely wanted to go to trial with this, um, not because, um, uh, you know, they were going to make more money. Obviously, they do make more money the more work they put into it. But most salvage cases do not go to trial. They get settled out in arbitration or mediation. And this would have been the largest salvage award or salvage case to go to trial since about the end of the Second World War. Um, that's a long period of time to go without any new precedent um, being written down in law. And so the lawyers were absolutely ecstatic that the government was going to take this to trial. Um, and, you know, it came around to, you know, me and the crew uh, who were there. And we said, you know, we didn't do this for money. We did this to help the five guys on the tugboat who were having a really bad night. Um, and that being said, I'd like to see what happens when we go into trial. Um, and so that's, you know, that's how we, you know, sort of rolled the dice and stepped into Judge Duvall's courtroom to see what would happen. I, I wanted to point out on the barge, the barge was, was loaded in such a way that they could tell if, if 
certain G-forces had ever been exerted. It had accelerometers on the barge to see because the, the tank could not take uh, more than one G-force, as I recall, right? Yeah, it, it, roughly that. It's it, Yeah, this is, a, this is a very, I mean, these fuel cells take roughly four years. When, you know, when they were building them, it was a four-year build process for these things. And if they got damaged, um, they you know, would not be used. I mean, they basically said the scrap value of the fuel cell, if it had been damaged, would have been about $15,000 for the aluminum that was in the fuel cell. And that's what the value of the fuel cell would have been. So these guys were you know, um, very happy that this thing was, you know, managed to stay in its transporter. Um, none of the accelerometers, you know, pegged out. So they were very happy that it was all nice and safe and secure for those guys. And so then it retained its its value because it was not damaged during the salvage then. Correct. Okay. So it goes to court then. And go ahead and outline what happened in the court case. So the, the court case was pretty, um, uh, wound up being very straightforward. So essentially what I did, I was the lead off person to testify in the trial. And essentially I'm doing um, what we've been doing for the last you know, hour and so here is talking about uh, talking about this, but in a little bit more detail uh, with some very specific things going. But I took about two and a half to three hours to, um, you know, go through or sort of be led but through, you know, uh, the events that happened and how they did it. And at the end, you know, Judge Duvall, and this is just in front of a judge, there's no jury. Um, Judge now, now, Duvall. Now, now, I was wondering about that when I was reading the, the book. So they don't put salvage claims in front of juries, or was this just that you chose not to put it in front of a jury? Now, generally, and, and Twain can talk more about this one from the Admiralty perspective, but federal maritime cases are generally in front of just judges. And Twain could probably step in and you know confirm that and tell how the process works. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, the plaintiff can can choose to have a jury as a fact finder, but um, but when it comes to you know general maritime law, these cases are typically bench trials. I mean, that's just a it's a it's a plaintiff election. But in a case like this, it wouldn't be surprising because you really want your you really want your judge to um, to know the law and uh, make the factual determinations. Okay. Okay. So, so I go off and lead off, you know, and spend about, you know, as Hugh Straub, the sort of the lead trial attorney said was, you know, throw the bucket of seawater on the judge, um, you know, and get him to feel what was going on. Um, and, you know, very quickly after this, you know, the, the judge was talking to the, um, um, the Justice Department attorneys and, you know, essentially called them back into chambers and said, you know, you owe them money and said yes your honor we're no we've 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 offered a settlement um we we are we've been prepared to go up to this amount of money um and we we can't go any further and the judge essentially said go get more money um and the, and the attorneys were like no the only person we could go to to ask for more money is the attorney general um and we're not in a position to do that so the judge came back out from that little meeting looked at the witness list and uh, we were expecting about a five-day trial and the judge just started, um, you know, cutting down a lot of the witness list, you know, people he didn't, you know, felt he didn't need to see and didn't need to take up the time for doing stuff. So we went from a five-day, expected five-day trial to uh, we finished Tuesday afternoon. We started on Monday morning and we finished Tuesday afternoon about three o'clock in the afternoon. 
um, <laughs> with the. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty short for a trial of this, of it's, this nature. It's, it's, it's pretty. It's pretty short. It was pretty straightforward. Um, I say there was no, you know, and, and the judge asked the uh, Justice Department attorneys. He said, "Do you disagree with anything Captain Strong has just said?" And they they stood up and said, "No, Your Honor, we do not disagree with anything that Captain Strong has said. The only thing that we disagree on is the valuation of the fuel cell." Um, so that was that was their that was their loan argument at that point in time is what was the value of the fuel cell which would you know potentially ultimately determine the amount of award that was given out so what did the judge come back with the judge came back at the end of the trial you know they listened to they listened to both sides the government was arguing that you know they could replace that fuel cell for a total of 19 million dollars um we you know our side certainly disagreed with that um and, you know, so that was going to be the argument. Are you, at, you know, we sort of started at $90 million. If you added in all the economic factors and costs and associated in there, you know, we came up with a $90 million figure. You know, the DD250, which is the government sort of sticker price on the end of these things when they came out for the next one in line after this one um, was around $52 million. And so the, the judge was more inclined to use that price than the $19 million that the um, that the the government wanted, or the $90 million that you know our side was looking for, and it was probably was probably the you know the reasonable replacement value cost of that fuel cell, and so that's what he ultimately wound up using um, as the price tag for you know for that, and he based his award. Um, on you know sort of sort of that figure so and your argument of of around 90 million dollars and i thought this argument made pretty good sense was that it's not just the cost of of the the contract manufacturer it was also the cost of everybody at nasa that put together the specifications and worked and 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 the facilities that were bought by nasa and and so forth and leased and, and that added to the cost per unit but that's not the actual sticker price. And I thought that made a pretty good argument. Well, it, it does. I mean, I think it, it did make a very valid argument. Um, and, you know, it would have been very nice to see that as the actual cost, because oftentimes you think when you look at something, what is the true cost of uh, of a of an item? You know, what's the true cost of, you know, driving, you know, a car around that's burning, you know, fossil fuels and putting stuff into the atmosphere? Is there a cost associated with that? So if you start to add up all the cost for things, you know, it ultimately can get pretty pricey for things. You know, the government's argument was that they sort of had a, you know, a, a contract that had never been signed that said, you know, if at the end of this contract you need one more fuel cell at the end of it, uh, we'll give you another one for, you know, $19 million, which was the marginal cost, which is basically, you know, time and materials to build this thing, but didn't, you know, have in any of the cost of, you know, the building or employees or any of the other stuff in there that had all been amortized over you know, the life cycle of, you know, the, the fuel cells, you know, and the government was trying to argue, you know, that's the true cost of a replacement fuel cell. And the judge didn't buy that one either, um, which, you know, that would be sort of a, you know, one of the experts on our side that was testifying as far as the economics go. It's like, you know, when Ford builds a car, um, you know, a new line of cars, you know, if you're going to say, 
all of the costs are amortized in the first car, you know, that first car is going to cost you, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars because of all of the cost to design, develop and run that car is going to cost you a whole lot of money. The second car off the line is basically time and materials. Um, and you can buy that car. So which car would you want to buy? Would you want to buy the first one or you want to buy the other ones farther down the road? Um, and so we, you know, we, that was sort of our argument is you, you can't legitimately say that, you know, you can only get a fuel cell or you can get a fuel cell just for, you know, time and materials, because if you could, why isn't the government paying that price for it to begin with? Right. Okay. So you, you, the judge gives an award and it was in the neighborhood of what? Six point. Six point six point two six point four million dollars. I I think six point two million dollars was the award that he gave out. So NASA had offered us you know five million dollars you know six months after this had been done, and then the judge comes out and uh, well actually six point four million and change. So it's just about six and a half million dollars that the judge comes out um, and offers as you know. You know, in his ruling um, gives us that amount of money for the salvage that we did, and the and the government was really not happy with that one. <laughs> okay, all right. So, so at that point in time, that's the end of the case. But now you still have to divvy it up between the owner of the ship and the crew. How would how was that negotiation? And and talk to us a little bit about that. So it, it's not fully the end of the case because the government, as I say, really did not like what we what that award was. So right. they I was going to I was going to I was going to come back to the appeal later on. So let's go ahead and talk about the appeal and then come back to this. Then. Yeah, because right. we we can't really talk about we we don't really get into the um, fixing up of the you know, the, uh, the splitting this out too much. Um, uh, other than that, but so this, the, and I'd say the things are working sort of simultaneously. I mean, we can talk about it there, but the government went off and appealed this case. And one of the, the interesting thing about this whole case was it was as the, as it was being tried, the government wanted this thing sealed. They wanted this whole case sealed because they did not want, you know, information getting out about, you know, how, you know, how they price things, how they um, pay for, you know, stuff through NASA. There was just a whole lot of stuff that was sort of proprietary information from Lockheed Martin, NASA, other things that, you know, they really just didn't want getting out there. I mean, I'm kind of a big fan of, you know, having clarity in everything that goes on, but, you know, the government wanted everything sealed. So we really didn't, you know, couldn't really talk about this, couldn't do a whole lot about this. So this whole thing was filed under seal. Um, for the appeals, you know, the appeal was filed in the appeals court down there in New Orleans. Um, it was filed, it was under seal, and it kind of got lost for about a year and a half. Um, basically, we got other stuff stacked on top of it, and the, the attorney, the lawyer, you know, the appeals court just forgot about it for a long time. And it finally, you know, worked on um, going through the appeals court. But simultaneously, while this was going on, up until you know, the point of the trial when there was an actual award out there, um, Keystone as the company and the crew had been working um, in the same direction. Our goals, our goals were the same, was to get an award. Um, and so we were all working together. We were using essentially one firm of attorneys um, to do this. 
Um, and Keystone was essentially paying the bill for all of that work. But once there was money to be split up, we had to um, sort of separate in and go our own separate ways because the crew's interests were now going to be different than the company's interests. So we had to go off as a crew um, to find out, you know, to figure out a way to settle out between Keystone and, you know, and the crew. So we had to go off and find our own attorney um, and then work on that and who in our own attorney then you know hired basically an expert in sort of this thing to sort of look at this analyze this and come up with his recommendations for um how we would settle out among the crew um and that was a whole lot of work i spent a whole lot of time working you know with the attorneys you know with the crew keeping in touch with everyone keeping everyone informed um, and, you know, making sure that everyone felt like they were being, you know, treated well and being respected for either their part in the salvage or even if they weren't directly involved in the salvage, just the fact that they were at risk on board as we were doing stuff. Um, so I spent far more time um, over the, you know, the next several years just working on making sure everyone felt like they were being, you know, treated fairly. Uh, than I ever did in the actual salvage case. Now, is yeah. there is there sort of a case precedent? I mean, I know fish fishermen, fish crews, you know, have shares for fishermen on board. The captain gets so much, the boat gets so much, and every crew member gets so much. Um, is is that sort of the approach you took uh, when you're trying to decide how you're going to break it up among the crew, or how did you go about that? So there is there's there's a fair there's a fair amount of precedent out there for stuff like this and how things get um, you know split up and you know what we did is we hired a you know you know a, a guy to look at this sit down evaluate it and say all right if you had to split up the money among us how would you go about doing this um, and he looked at all the factors of who was you know who was actually involved on deck how did they you know what did they do what was their percentages um type of thing and he came up you know he came up with something that was you know that ultimately i think was you know very fair um and that made sure that everyone felt like they were treated you know fairly um and and got a share of the award i mean there's certainly some cases out there where you know the captain gets you know the lion's share gets 50 percent of the award and the rest of the crew splits other stuff you know the rest of the stuff out there um you know and we just we came up with a way that sort of worked for us that everyone you know everyone got a a, a nice chunk of um um money out of this thing to uh you know to sort of you know represent the work that we'd done and the risk that we'd undertaken I don't think I need to go into detail on how you divvied it out any further. If people want that, they can go to the book and read it. But let me ask you what you're doing now. So so this happened in 1994. I was in my first year of sailing as captain I uh, for Keystone Shipping. I sailed uh, for about another year and a half or till the end of 96. So I had three years of sailing as captain and the beginning of January, 1997, I got the ability or the chance to move ashore and become a full-time um, harbor pilot um, up in Maine. So I, you know, I have the best job in the world now, as far as I'm concerned, I get to go on big ships. I get to do the ship handling, which is what I really enjoy doing. I'm on waters. I love I'm home most every night and I even get paid to go off and do it. 
All right. Twain, I want to ask you, you are also you've also written another book on 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 seamanship, correct? I wrote a uh, I wrote a book that was published a couple of years ago. It's called the uh, the Guide to Sailing and Seamanship. That's right. So it's it's about basically about small boat sailing. Okay, and tell me a little bit about your schooner project. Are you still involved in that? I I think you're referring to uh, Portland Schooner Company that uh, that a partner and I started right. in Portland. Yeah, in 2002. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I I did that for about three years, um, and then in uh, and then I sold my half of the company to him. Um, and now I, I keep my license active, and I still sail. You know, on nice summer days when I get a call because. One of the captains has, you know, a wedding commitment or wants a day off or something. So, uh, thankfully, I'm not one of the owners anymore. I just get to kind of show up and play schooner captain every now and then. All right. Well, I'm going to put a link to your your book. It's available on Amazon, correct? Uh, I, I believe it is. Yep. Okay. And a link to to the In Peril book. And I want to thank you guys both for joining me. Do you have anything else that we haven't covered that you think we should before? Uh, we call it an interview. Skip? Um, I would say that the, uh, you know, it's a, you know, this is one of those things that it's, um, you know, I wind up getting the, uh, getting, you know, the praise and the attention for doing all of this. Um, but uh, I can't stress enough that this is ab- absolutely a team effort in doing something like this. I had a phenomenal crew on my ship um, who allowed me to go off there and be able to do this stuff. I had the, I had confidence in their ability to do stuff. They had confidence in me that I wasn't going to mess up. Um, the guys in the tugboat did everything they possibly could um, to um, get out there and um, you know help us, you know help us help them. And so it was just, you know, it's one of those things, you know, yeah, as captain, you know, it's one of the one of the sort of advantages and disadvantages of being the job as captain. You know, when things go when things go wrong, we take the blame. When things go right, you know, we share the credit with the crew who absolutely are the ones who enable, you know, captains to go off and do their stuff. Um, And then the same way with writing this whole book. I mean, it was a you know, this was a collaborative project. I mean, you know, Twain was the one who kept, you know, sort of hounding me on this. It's like there's more than a magazine article in here and um, to put this all together. And I was actually ultimately surprised that I wound up writing as much of the book as I did. But, you know, and each one of us would take turns at um, different sections and start, one of us would start writing and then the other one would come in and offer suggestions or edits or say, nope, that's really terrible. We need to scrap that one and start over again. So, uh, but it was a fun process doing that whole, doing the whole book. And it's uh, still somewhat um, surprising to me that, you know, 12 years afterwards, we're still talking about this incident. That's a great story. Twain, do you have any other comments? I just that I, I agree with Skip about it being a team effort. It's been a it was a great joy to get his phone call and everybody likes the Steve story. And so I'm I'm grateful I picked up the phone and, and that we had that uh that conversation and, and that it's it's grown into a not just a a career, you know, kind of a different career choice for me that's uh that's very interesting every day, but it's also been a, a great friendship with Skip on uh, on this project. So it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. Do you guys live in the same geographic neighborhood? Do you get together personally once in a while? Uh, we we do. I, I'm in Portland, uh, kind of in southern southern Maine, and Skip's pretty far down east. He's about three three and a half hours from me, 
Um, and but you know, events come up such as this one. We we spoke about this project just you know six weeks or so ago here in Portland. Um, so you know, every now and then we do get together and see each other and have lunch or a beer or whatever it is uh, socially as well. All right. Well, if either one of you get out to Salt Lake, make sure you get a hold of me. Uh, I'd love to meet you personally. Bronze, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, Bronze, it has. It has been fun talking about this. And um, yeah, I said I hope you have a I hope you have a good time and can figure out a way to chop this down into two segments. Oh, uh, it'll be easy enough. There's a good breaking point in here, and and I really appreciate your time. And again, if you if you're ever out in my way, please look me up or just keep in touch. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Well, thanks, Francis. This was fun. All right. Thanks for listening. If you are interested in studying for any of the American Sailing Association courses, the ASA 101, the 103, or the 104, I have a series of audio lessons for each of those examinations. Now, the difference between my audio lessons and what you're going to find in a book is I pepper my lessons with personal anecdotes, and I try to make it interesting. And I've got a lot of positive comments about my stories. I think the way you learn is that you associate a concept with a story that makes it easier to learn. So when I'm teaching a concept, I try to relate a personal story which uses the concept in the lessons. If you are just starting out or dreaming of being a sailor, let me suggest that you take a look at the ASA 101 course, the basic keelboat certification. That's going to give you a lot of the terminology that's used in sailing, the basic maneuvers, some of the safety procedures on a boat, the gear that's required, some of the Coast Guard requirements and so forth. Take a look at it. It's available at the website, medsailor.com. Also, the courses are available in iTunes and on Amazon. All right, get out there and go sailing. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends about the podcast. Joe, you have something to tell me? No, I... I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck? Take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking. Where we might be ten years from now, you know? <laughs>